All right, we're in Jonah chapter 3. We're going to pick up where we left off last time. Just a little bit of a recap that the story of Jonah is very significant for Christians because of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verses 40 and 41. It's from the New King James. Jesus said, For as Jonah was three days and three nights to the belly of the great fish, or that's actually the word is whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. So actually chapter 3, we're going to talk about the latter part of that. The men of Nineveh repenting at the preaching of Jonah. But it's the three days and three nights is the foreshadowing the resurrection of the third day. So in the previous lesson, we talked about Jesus not just using a simile like a thief in the night. This is more a full-blown allegory, Eastern-style prophecy like the story of the Passover lamb. So it really happened. However, it also has allegorical, allegorical significance. And we talked about the similarities between Jonah and Jesus. Both of them were prophets from Galilee. Gathy for being very close to Nazareth. Both were called on a difficult mission that they tried to get out of. Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, the cup be taken away from him. And both were asked three questions as their, as their impending doom approached. They were asked, where are you from? What's your occupation? Jesus asked, are you a king? And then, what did you do to bring this trouble upon, upon you and, and all of us? So, in both cases, one man had to be handed over to death in order to save everyone else. And in both cases, the only way to restore peace was that this prophet from Galilee had to be lifted up and cast over to death. Jesus, of course, lifted up on the cross. And in both cases, those who handed them over to death did so only reluctantly, not wanting innocent blood on their hands. And as they're cast over to death, there are miraculous signs in nature, and the Gentiles fear God when they see these signs occurring. Both end up in Hades. Jonah, Jesus literally was in Hades, as it says in Acts chapter 2, when Peter's quoting from, Acts, uh, from uh, Psalm 16. And then Jonah figuratively in Hades, he's in the belly of the whale, but he cries out as if he says, I'm, I'm in Hades, get me out of here. And then after three days of imprisoned, being imprisoned in this Hades, both are cast out and miraculously returned to the land of the living uh, bodily. So that's just all, the, all the parallels here between Jesus and Jonah, wonderful foreshadowing. And we also talked about how Jesus died, could actually die on Friday afternoon and be raised on Sunday morning and how that would actually uh, match what Jesus said here was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. We talked about that last time. So I want to pick it up in Jonah chapter 3. And I'm going to start with the last verse in chapter 2. Set the stage for that. Jonah chapter 2 verse 11. It says, Then the Lord commanded the sea creature, the whale, and it cast up Jonah onto the dry land. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and preach there according to the message I previously spoke to you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, just as the Lord spoke. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city to God, a journey of about three days. And Jonah began to enter into the city, going a day's journey. 
where he proclaimed and said, Yet three days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the men of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. Then the word of the Lord came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, put on sackcloth, and sat upon ashes. And it was proclaimed and spoken in Nineveh by the king and by his great men, saying, Let not the men, cattle, oxen, or sheep, taste anything, eat or drink water. So the men and the cattle were clothed with sackcloth, and they cried out fervently to God. And they each turned back from their evil ways and from the wrongdoing of their hands, saying, Who knows if God shall have a change of heart and turn away his fierce anger that we should not perish. And God saw their works, and they turned that they turned from their evil ways, and God had a change of heart about the evil which he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So, as God had commanded the whale to swallow Jonah, he now commands the whale to disgorge him, and he so the whale uh, releases him onto, onto dry land, swims up to near, near the land and releases Jonah, Jonah comes out of the whale. God speaks to Jonah again, calling him to go preach to Nineveh as he had previously, and this time Jonah obeys. So Jonah goes to Nineveh and he preaches that God is about to destroy that city because of its wickedness. The entire city repents, fasts, puts on sackcloth and prays to God. The king of this city comes off his throne, takes off his royal robes, puts on sackcloth, and sits in ashes. He proclaims a fast for everyone. And it says even the animals are clothed in sackcloth and are not permitted. So literally, it's, just, it's, it's the livestock, literally. So it's all the animals, all the, all the domesticated animals. They have to wear sackcloth, and they can't eat, and they can't drink water either. So uh, how fair is that? And then God sees the repentance and as a result changes his mind and does not destroy the city. So the, uh, you may have noticed here, I'm reading from the Septuagint, and you may, you may have noticed uh, something jumped out at you. It says, yet three more days and then it will be destroyed. Well, I, I mean, for decades I was reading uh, the Old Testament based on the Masoretic text where it says 40 days and 40 days will be destroyed. So that's the... the the most significant difference in terms of the text of Jonah is a quote from Justin Martyr, an early Christian writer. He's writing around the year 160, and he's addressing Trypho, who's a Jew, and some of his Jewish friends. It's very early writing. And he's explaining to the Jews why they need to pay attention to this story from their own scriptures. And so he's quoting from it, and it'd be obvious he's quoting from the Septuagint. So he's making the point. So he's arguing with the Jews. Justin Martyr is from Samaria. He says, and then he would rise again on the third day after the crucifixion. It is written in the memoirs that some of your nation questioning him said, show us a sign. And he replied to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign shall be given them save the sign of Jonah. And since he spoke this obscurely, it was to be understood by the audience that after his crucifixion, he should rise again on the third day. And he showed that your generation, he's talking to the Jews here, he showed that your generation was more wicked 
and more adulterous than the city of Nineveh. For the latter, when Jonah preached to them after he'd been cast up on the third day from the belly of the great fish, that after three, and then in parenthesis it says in other versions 40, days should all perish, proclaimed a fast for all creatures, men and beasts, with sackcloth and with earnest lamentation, with true repentance from the heart and turning away from unrighteousness in the belief that God is merciful and kind to all who turn from wickedness. So the king of the city himself with his robes also put on sackcloth and remained fasting and praying and obtained their request that the city should not be overthrown. And then a little further down, Justin continues, And though all the men of your nation knew the incidents of the life of Jonah, and though Christ said amongst you that he would give the sign of Jonah, exhorting you to repent of your wicked deeds, at least after he rose again from the dead, and to mourn before God as did the Ninevites, in order that your nation and city might not be taken and destroyed, as they have been destroyed. So keep in mind, Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. He's writing at 160 about how your city was just destroyed, just like the Ninevites were warned. Yet you not only have not repented after you learned he rose from the dead, but as I said before, you've sent chosen and ordained men throughout all the world to proclaim that a godless and lawless heresy has sprung up from one Jesus, a Galilean deceiver whom we crucified. His disciples stole him by night from the tomb where he was laid when unfastened from the cross and now deceived men by asserting he's risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. Remember, it says that they spread a story in the Gospels. It says they spread a story that, that the disciples stole the body. And here it is, the year 160. The Jews are still spreading that, that story around. Moreover, you accuse them of having taught those godless, lawless, and unholy doctrines, which you mentioned to the condemnation of those who confess him to be the Christ and a teacher from and the son of God. Besides this, even when your city is captured and your land ravaged, you don't repent but dare to utter imprecations on him and all who believe in him. Yet we do not hate you or those who by your means have conceived such prejudices against us. But we pray that even now all of you may repent and obtain mercy from God, the compassionate and long-suffering Father of all. That's from Justin Martyr's Dialogue with Trifo, chapters 107 and 108, and Nicene Fathers, volume 1, pages 252 and 253. So uh, Justin's expanding on the point that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 12, and he's addressing this specifically to the Jews, to contrasting them with the men of Nineveh who repented at the preaching of Jonah. And I noticed also that when Justin is quoting this, he, he quote mentions the, the three days and then it will be destroyed, which is, which is he's obviously he's reading the Septuagint. David Adams, when I was going to be preaching in, in, from Jonah, David said, you know, Chuck, I really want you to do some research to find out what were the sins of the people of Nineveh that they had to repent of, that God was so upset. And so I looked all over the Bible. I couldn't find anything. And I thought, well, what do I do now? Do I, do I open a commentary and see what that says? And I thought, you know, how do I know what they're, how do, how do I know what they're saying is true or not? So I, I kind of came up empty in terms of, of just wondering, what did the people of Nineveh do 
that was so bad. I was, I was wondering, was it extreme violence, pagan idolatry, maybe human sacrifice to pagan gods, sexual immorality, unchecked greed, lack of compassion for other people, maybe they involved in the occult or Satan worship, or deep sins of the flesh or the spirit, pride and arrogance. Now, what was it that got God so upset with them that he's going to, of all the cities in the world, he's going to obliterate with laser focus this one city? And it doesn't say, and nowhere in the scriptures does it say what they did. And I was thinking, is there any place in the Bible where, where, where there was a city that suffered a similar fate? And there's one that jumps out to mind. I think about the, the statement in, in Jonah chapter 1 and verse 2. It says, the cry of her wickedness of Nineveh has come up to me. So what story does that make you think of? The cry of the wickedness of this city has come up to me. It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So this is like Sodom and Gomorrah 2.0, basically. In Genesis 18, verses 20 and 21, it says, The Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is this great, because their sins are very grave, I'll go now and see whether, uh, they, what, uh, whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come up to me. So this is the same thing. The outcry has come up to God, and he's prepared to execute judgment on the city for the wickedness. So what, what this indicates to me is, I don't know what specifically they were doing, but they were in the same category in God's mind as Sodom and Gomorrah was, that he's hearing of all the cities in the world, and all the corruption that's going on, that God is hearing how wicked... Those people were. We know what the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah was from Genesis 19. It talks about the violence and sexual, extreme sexual depravity of that city. And then Ezekiel 16, it asked that, they said they were leading a life of self-indulgence, lawlessness, and showed no concern for the poor. So we know we know this they're just living for pleasure, basically. In, in, in Sodom and Gomorrah. But there's no specifics for the sin of Nineveh, and maybe the Lord left it that way deliberately so that no matter what sin we're involved in, we can't look down on them and say, well, at least I'm not like they are. So this is a good example for us that God didn't specifically tell us what they were involved in. But whatever it was, they knew what it was. <laughs> when Jonah preached that they needed to repent, and he preached the destruction of God. They all were cut to the heart, and they knew what the sin was that they had to repent of, even if we don't. Okay? So, a couple of questions that I have. Uh, you know, I, I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking, why did the people of Nineveh repent? This one guy from far away shows up in their city single-handedly and says God is going to destroy this city for the wickedness. And everybody in the city, from the top to the bottom, believes him and believes God, and they repent. And I'm thinking, why did they believe this man? What was it about him? Was he thinking, was he such a powerful preacher that, that, that he could speak with such force that... That, that everybody just repented when they heard it. Was, was it Jonah? Was Jonah that powerful of a preacher? Maybe he was. I don't know. But, uh, and maybe that's why God didn't have a plan B, is that Jonah didn't want to go. God made sure Jonah's going to go. He's, he's the man. There's no one else for the job here. Uh, 
But I, I want to consider, I'll throw something out as an idea, just put it out there. Okay, the Matthew 12 passage, we've talked about that quite a bit. There's a parallel passage in Luke chapter 11. Let's read that. Luke chapter 11, verses 29 to 32. This is a parallel passage, and most people skip over this because there's less detail, but there's one thing different in here. Maybe notice what it is. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 29. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, This is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. Let's skip down to verse 32. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation condemn it, for they repented the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. So here's here's what I'm wrestling with. It says in verse 30, as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites. Now, when I'm reading in Matthew chapter 12, what is the sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah is the resurrection on the third day, right? He says Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites. And the question I'm left with is, did the Ninevites know that he came out of a whale on the third day? Was there somebody cleaning their nets by the sea? And they saw a whale beach itself on the shore, open its mouth, Jonah come out. And then they tell everybody in the city, watch out. There's somebody who just came out of a whale who's been in there. Did they know that somehow? I don't know. It doesn't say that they did. But what is this? this, Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites. Was it the fact that they knew he'd just come out of a whale, which might have put the fear of God into them? I mean, talk about special delivery of a prophet. Or was it just the power of his preaching? Or was it both? I don't know. But I'll just put that out there. So somehow or other, Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites. Uh, So some things that I learned about the Ninevites and the story here is despite whatever depravity and sin that they were involved in, and it must have been really, really bad, despite that, these people feared God. They had a fear of God. Their consciences were not seared to the point where they were beyond all hope. Now, sin tends to sear our consciences, but there was something, there was a heartbeat left inside of them, spiritually. They had soft hearts to the point where no matter, even regardless of the sin that they were involved in, which was very, very bad, it cut them to the heart. So the lesson for me is, don't write off anybody. No matter how severe the sin that somebody's in, you don't know. You don't know whether they're going to be like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah who are beyond hope or the people of Nineveh who despite the incredible depravity that they were involved in, when they heard the word of the Lord, they had soft enough hearts, they feared God, and they responded and they repented. Uh, I'm reminded what Jesus said. He, he put it had coming out of the mouth of Abraham, the story of the rich man Lazarus. He said... 
uh, you know, when, when the rich man said, could you please send Lazarus back? I mean, maybe if they saw somebody come back from the dead, they'd pay attention. You know, obviously we're talking about himself. And Abraham said, he said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they persuade it, although someone rises from the dead. <laughs> obviously, Jesus is speaking about himself here. Is that the sign that he would give them the resurrection from the dead, that some people be so hard-hearted they wouldn't even listen to that. Uh, now, Jesus said on the day of judgment, Matthew chapter 12, he said, the men of Nineveh will rise up with this generation and condemn it. And the queen of the south will rise up. Men of Nineveh lived 700 years before the time of the people Jesus was speaking to. So the picture is, you have everyone raised and judged at the same time on the day of judgment. It's not you, you individually judge and you go to heaven. So everyone is judged at the same time. And the men of Nineveh are going to be there. And the men of Nineveh, he says, are going to lay out the people of that generation. Because they said, we listened and we repented with fasting and sackcloth and ashes turned away from our, from our evil. We repented the preaching of Jonah. You had Jesus risen from the dead and you didn't listen to him. Shame on you. What's your problem? He says you're going to be rebuked by the men of Nineveh on the day of judgment as well as the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba. Uh, so lesson to learn about the, the people of Nineveh. Je Jesus uses the men of Nineveh to, to shame the unbelievers. The extraordinary response of the people of Nineveh, despite the serious sin that they were involved in, when they hear the word of the Lord, listen to what they do. They believe God. They all fast and put on sackcloth. The king gets off his throne, takes off his royal robes, dons sackcloth and sits in ashes to abase himself before the Lord. The king and his officials proclaim a universal fast in the city. No food, no water. It applies to all the people as well as the livestock. Everyone turns from their evil ways and repents of their wickedness. The people all cry out to God in prayer, seeking mercy and forgiveness that God might change his mind and change his plan and not destroy them. Now, one of, the, one of the strange things about this story here is not only do all the people put on sackcloth and, and fast, but the animals do too, okay? They put, and obviously, the animals aren't putting their own sackcloth on. So people are they're putting sackcloth on themselves, and they're chasing the animals around. Putting, now, what's sackcloth? Sackcloth is strong, cheap cloth. be like burlap bags today. So it's what you put feed in, basically. It's, you put, you put a... a you put grain in there, so it's, a, it's scratchy, it's rough. And so this is not what you want next to your body. So the people are putting sackcloth on. It's very irritating and very, very humbling. And they're also putting it on the animals. And so I know what Adam is thinking right now. Adam is thinking, what are the animals thinking? What, when they're, when they're, the people are chasing them around and putting this, tying this sackcloth around them. Adam loves the animals. Okay, he, see, he, what, are the, what are the animals thinking while this is going on here? Okay, and the Bible doesn't say what the animals are thinking, but animals do think, all right? 
And uh, so I'm imagining what the animals are thinking here. And, and the donkey may be thinking, you know, I've just been, I've just been too stubborn. I need to amend my ways here. Okay? And, and then the goats are thinking, you know, I'm just going around butting everybody. I need to, I need to lay off. And then a particularly accused pig, I can imagine, is thinking, you know, I've just been living like a pig. I mean, I'm just... I'm just pigging out, I'm a glutton, I eat garbage, and then they hose me off and I dive right back into the mud again. You know, a really accused pig. And then, and then another more thoughtful pig, pigs are pretty intelligent animals, would probably be thinking, wait a minute, you're a pig. This is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to roll in the mud. You're supposed to eat everything, you're, okay, and, and get fat. That's what you're supposed to do. The problem is the humans. It's bad enough that they keep us in pens, and they eat us, and, and they use us for their labor. Bad enough that they do that, but now they're punishing us for the sin that they're involved in. God's mad at them, not at us. The animals didn't do anything wrong, did they? No, animals, they're just being themselves. So they're like collateral damage. They're like the people in, in the boat with Jonah. You know, God's after somebody else. So I think they have some misconceptions about, about who God is upset with, but they want to make sure they're covering all the bases, right? So uh, in this story here, the people of Nineveh, as wicked as they were, change the mind of God. They're changing the plan of God. They're crying out to God, and their prayer is having an incredible impact in, in changing God and changing history. The Lord answered their prayers. And I believe there's a powerful lesson about prayer in this story. One is, prayer can change things. I remember my mother would often say, well, God knows everything. He wants the good. What's the point of praying to God? Well, this story here, prayer changed things. The people cried out to God. But prayer is especially effective when it's combined with righteousness turning away from sin, and fasting. When you do all three together. You know, people wonder about fasting. What's, what's, the, what's, what's the spiritual importance of fasting? I mean, who likes to fast? You know? <laughs> okay, we like to eat. We like to eat. We like to feast. We like food. Who wants to fast? Get up in the morning. Well, I can't wait till the next time I'm going to fast. That's, that's really, I'm looking forward to that. I was out for a walk with an old friend. I hadn't seen him in a while, and I noticed he was walking up to me and said, wow, you look a whole lot thinner than the last time I saw you. You look good. And I said, you didn't look, you didn't look fat before, but you just look like you've lost a lot of weight. And he said, well, it's intermittent fasting. A lot of people fast for health reasons, okay? I'll tell you, or, or people fast for health reasons, or people fast out of guilt sometimes. I did something terrible, so I think I need to punish myself and, and fast as a result of that. Um, let me tell you an analogy that, that, that helps me to understand the importance of fasting. When you go to the post office, you have a letter or parcel, a small package to mail. And you, you, go up to the, you, you wait in line, you go up and, and you, you hand in the package. And what's the question that the man at the counter asks? How fast do you want it there? Okay? Do you want it snail mail? <laughs> do you want, you want a truck to deliver it? Do you want two-day delivery, special delivery, 
next morning delivery? Tell me what kind you want. Now, of course, you're thinking in your mind, well, if I want it there the next day, I'm going to be paying five times as much to get it there as, as the normal way. It's going to cost you a lot more if you want priority, attention, and service. Okay, It's going to be a personal cost, and so you have to weigh that. If you're thinking, wow, this is my passport, and I can't, I can't go on the plane if, if I don't get this thing back quickly, you're going you're gonna to do next day delivery. You're going to pay more money. If you think, well, this is, or, or, or if it's a birthday to somebody, and I'm sure nobody would send a birthday card out late you know, in, in this room, but let's say, let's say I want to get a birthday, to, a birthday gift or card to somebody, and you want to make sure it gets there on their birthday. You pay more money for that, as opposed to just some paying some random bill. Okay, uh, paying more expedites the delivery in mail. And I believe it's the same thing with our prayers. You know, when, when you say, I'm going to pay the extra, extra money, what, what the, the man at the counter does, he, he puts a big sticker on it, special delivery, next day, whatever it is, and he throws it in a different bin and it gets treated differently than all the other mail. Likewise, I believe that if we are combining our prayers with righteousness and fasting, all of a sudden that changes things. You know, Jesus, when he's talking about prayer, in Matthew chapter 6, he says, when you pray, and then he says, when you fast. He doesn't say if you fast. The assumption is, well, of course, if you're my followers, of course you're going to be fasting. Well, why would you be fasting? Jesus talked about this also. Think about this, Luke chapter 5 and starting verse 33. They said to him, why the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise, those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And I have people say, well, the fasting, that's, that's Old Testament. That's, that's the apostle John, John, it's John the Baptist, the Pharisees, they fast, but the disciples of Jesus, they were feasting and partying all the time. He says, and he said to them, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. So who's the bridegroom? Jesus. Has he been taken away from us? Yes. What are the implications? Jesus says, I'm with you right now. You're not going to be fasting, but when I'm taken away, then you will fast. Think about what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter, 5, chapter 7 and verse 5. He says, don't deprive, this is the married couple, he says, don't deprive one another except for time. You may devote, give yourself to fasting and prayer and come together again so Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Jesus is saying this. It wasn't that they're going to fast for the three days while he's in the tomb before he comes back again. It says after he's taken away, which includes now that we're going to be fasting. So couple things to note about fasting. Fasting is not to punish yourself for your sins. That's not what it's about. All right? Jesus fasted for 40 days. Did he sin? No, he didn't. I once heard a preacher who said, you know, I'd rather repent and feast than fast. Okay? That's what he said. He didn't like fasting. He liked food. He liked eating. All right? Uh, but that, I think he misunderstands the point of fasting. On the other hand, sackcloth and ashes is another story. And that's, that's, you do that to abase yourself in a, a situation of, it was a classic sign 
of penitence for the sins that you've been involved with to abase yourself before God. Jesus said the same thing in Luke chapter 10, verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. If the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. A uh, couple of questions. Okay, obvious ones. Do you fast? Do you fast regularly? Are your prayers combined with righteousness and fasting and repentance as were the effective prayers of the Ninevites? Here. Another question. Sometimes people fast regularly, but you can go through a day of fasting, but not actually not actually get around to praying. You just stop eating for a day and just wait until three o'clock rolls around or the end of the day or dinner rolls around. You just kind of tough it out for the day. You've had a day of fasting. The whole idea is that prayer and fasting uh, go together. It's like paying a lot of extra money to deliver a package, but the box is empty. There's nothing inside. Okay. What's the point of that? All right. Uh, for those who rarely fast, I mean, we have some people in here who are nursing mothers. I mean, I'm not talking about people who, for obvious health reasons, uh, can't fast. But fast is expected to be a regular part of the Christian life. If you never fast, what does it say about how serious God you want God to treat your prayers? What does it say about your faith in God? What does it say about your belief that you have the ability through righteous prayer and fasting to change the mind of God and thereby change the course of history as the men of Nineveh, as wicked as they had been, had done? You know, fasting was an important part of the spiritual life of the church in the beginning. It's an early Christian writing, Apostolic Constitutions, which talks about fasting. So think about this. It's talking about the importance of fasting. It says both Moses and Elijah fasted for 40 days, and Daniel for three weeks of days did not eat the desirable bread and flesh and wine did not enter in his mouth. And blessed Hannah, when she asked for Samuel, said, I've not drunk wine or strong drink, and I poured out my soul before the Lord. So these were you know, types of fast or an abstinent partial fast. And the Ninevites, when they fasted three days and three nights, escaped the execution of wrath. And Esther and Mordecai and Judith, by fasting, escaped the insurrection of the ungodly Holofernes and Haman. That's from the story of Judith in the Deuterocanonical books. And David says, my knees are weak through fasting and my flesh fails for want of oil. Do you therefore fast and ask your positions of God? We enjoin you to fast every fourth day of the week and every day of preparation. Basically, day of preparation is Friday. Fourth day of the week is Wednesday because it starts on Sunday. So basically, they said we encourage you to fast every Wednesday and Friday. And the surplus from your fast, this is the money you would have used for eating, bestow upon the needy. That's from Apostolic Constitutions, Book 5, Section 3, and I've seen Fathers, Volume 7, page 449. So... You can look at this as an interesting, curious, like going through a museum, isn't that nice what the Christians used to do a long time ago? Or you can say, why shouldn't we be doing the same thing? Ancient Christian practice to fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. They fast either the whole day or they fast until three or they'd be a partial fast as they allude to here as well. So 
Challenges, obvious ones. Imitate the effective prayers of the Meninovites. Combine it with repentance, righteousness, and fasting. And make fasting and prayer a regular part of your life and get the attention of God and appeal to him to change the course of history. Okay, I want to tell you a little story here. This is a little made-up story, okay? I want you to imagine this. Three Jewish men are going for a long walk on the road together. And this is the time shortly before Jesus and John the Baptist. And they're, they're passing the time, and they're talking about the scriptures, and they, they, want to, they, they come up with a little game that they're going to play to pass the time as they're walking along the road. The first, the first question is, who's the greatest? Is, you know, this is the, you know, the G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. All right? this, <laughs> they do that with sports. People argue about who's the greatest of all time. Well, they're having an argument. Who's the greatest of all time? In the Bible, in the, in the Hebrew scriptures. So the first one is, who's the greatest king of all time? And that doesn't take very long. They all agree David is probably the greatest one. And then the next one, who's the greatest priest of all time? And they talk about that. I think they, they'd end up settling on Aaron was probably the greatest priest. And then they get to a much tougher one. Who's the greatest prophet of all time? They think about this for a while. And the first one steps up. And he says, this is going to be short because you have, to, you have to be able to top the previous one in order to speak. That's one of the rules. So you can, and it's kind of a can you top this? He said, we're going to end it right now. He says, Moses was clearly the greatest prophet of all time. He gave us the law. He went up to Mount Sinai and spoke to God one on one. He brought the 10 plagues down in Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. He, he, he brought down manna in the wilderness. He confronted Pharaoh, the great ruler of Egypt, and his officials, his magicians. And in the end, he said, listen, there's a way of light that leads to life and a way that leads to destruction. And he, he warned the people about what would happen if they abandoned God and he called them to follow God. He said, you know, that's, that's it. You can't do more than that. Moses was the greatest prophet. There's a moment of silence, and then the second guy steps up. And he says, there's one prophet who is greater than Moses. It's Elijah. He says, Elijah spoke against Ahab and Jezebel, the most wicked rulers of our nation. He brought drought. His prayer had stopped it from raining on the land for three years. He prayed and it rained again. He went up on Mount Carmel and single-handedly confronted 450 prophets of Baal. And he called fire down from the sky. Okay. And if that wasn't enough, he was taken up by a chariot of fire and didn't see death. He was taken up alive. And... If we believe what the prophet Malachi says, he's going to come back again before the day of the Lord. Elijah was the greatest of all the prophets. Okay, and then there's a longer moment of silence. And the third guy speaks up. And, and, and he says, actually, there's one prophet greater than Moses and Elijah. And this, this guy happens to be from the village of gath Hefer, And he says... And he happens to be from my own hometown, from Gath Heber. It's Jonah. He was the greatest prophet of them all. 
And the derision and scorn that's poured out on him and, and the dirty looks that he gets. They said, wait a minute, the rules are you have to be able to top this. There's no way. I mean, Jonah was a minor leaguer. He's, he's in the second tier of the prophets. If you, said, if you said Isaiah or Jeremiah, maybe we could respect you. But Jonah, I mean, his, 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 he's got one short book in the scriptures. And, and look at him. He ran away from God in the beginning when he was called. He disobeyed God. And then at the end, he's sulking about, about a gourd that, that dried up. Said, so what kind of a greatest prophet is that? And he said, you have to listen. You have to understand. A prophet's primary mission is to call people back to God and to repent of sin. That's the number one job of the prophet. He said, did Moses, in preaching to Pharaoh, did he convert the Pharaoh, or the, did he change the Pharaoh's mind or convert the people of Egypt? No. Elijah, did he change the mind? Did he convert the 450 prophets of Baal when he confronted them on Mount Carmel? No. He had them killed. Did he convert Jezebel? Certainly not. He said, but Jonah was the greatest prophet because he preached single-handedly to over 120,000 people in Nineveh, a pagan city, and he brought them to repentance in sackcloth and ashes. He was the greatest prophet of all time. Now, a lot of people try to denigrate Jonah and look at him and take pot shafts at it. Well, he wasn't good because of this. He wasn't good because of that. But think about it. What did Jesus say about him? Jesus gives a self-portrait in Matthew chapter 12 by comparing himself, benchmarking himself against two men from the Old Testament. Solomon and Jonah. He is greater than Solomon. Solomon was the wisest man on the face of the earth, the son of David and the ruler over the kingdom. Okay, Jesus did him one better. He was greater than Solomon, the son of David, the, the ruler over the kingdom of God, and he was wiser than Solomon. He compares himself also to Jonah of all people in Scripture. That, that he is a greater preacher of repentance than Jonah. He's going to have more effect and impact than Jonah who brought 120,000 pagans, Gentiles to righteousness. So this is Jesus' self-portrait. What does this tell us about Jesus? How he saw himself. Now Jesus, the Bible presents Jesus through the prophecies as it talks about God will raise up for people and they're all the same referring the same person it says he's going to raise up a king like David it says he's going to raise up a priest okay he's going to raise up a king he's going to raise up a priest he's going to raise up a shepherd from Ezekiel 34 one shepherd and then Deuteronomy 18 he says he's going to raise up one prophet okay and, you know, the, the, the Muslims will say, well, Jesus was just a great prophet. Well, Jesus was a great prophet. He was a prophet, a priest, a king, and a shepherd. He was all of those. And Jesus presents himself as the greatest prophet of all time in terms of proclaiming the word of God 
and calling the nations to repent of their sin and their wickedness, even greater than Jonah. And you think, well, that's great. That's the, you repent before you become a Christian. But Jesus does, 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 a, does a curtain call in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2 and 3, he comes back to the seven churches and he's speaking to Christians, to the seven churches. And to several of them, his message is repent. He's taking on the mantle of the prophet calling people to repent and turn back to God and warning them of what's going to happen if they don't repent. Message of repentance, not just people to become Christians, but, 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 but to, to live a life of, of following what God has to say. Let's continue in Jonah chapter 4. But Jonah was deeply grieved and was troubled. So he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, were these not my words when I was getting my land? Therefore I saw the need to flee to Tarshish, because I knew you to be compassionate and merciful, long-suffering, abundant in mercy, and willing to change your heart concerning evils. And now, Master, Lord, take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said to Jonah, Are you exceedingly grieved? Then Jonah went out of the city and seated himself opposite it. There he made himself a tent and sat under its shade until he might observe what would happen in the city. And the Lord God commanded a gourd, and it came up over the head of Jonah to be a shade over his head to shield him from discomforts. Jonah rejoiced with great joy because of the gourd. But early the next morning, God commanded a worm, and it smote the gourd, and the gourd withered up. And when the sun rose, God commanded a burning east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, and he grew faint and despaired of his life. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, are you exceedingly grieved on account of the gourd? And he said, I'm exceedingly grieved even to death. And the Lord said, you took pity on the gourd, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came up during the night and perished before the next night. And shall I myself not take pity upon Nineveh, the great city in which dwell more than 120,000 people who do not know either their right hand or their left and many livestock? Uh, so what do we learn from this? What do we learn, learn, what do we learn about God from this story here? What do we learn? Uh, Jonah was looking for of the repeat of Sodom and Gomorrah. So he's, he's got a nice place to look. He's, got a, he's, he's waiting for God just to wipe the city out, just, just like, like uh, he had, had prophesied against the city. But God's not going to do that because the people have amended their ways. And you say, well, wait a minute. God said he was going to destroy the city, but just like it says in Ezekiel 33, that uh, if God tells the wicked person to, that they're going to be destroyed and they repent, then he will hold back the destruction. That he will, he will change his mind and, and save the wicked person. So this is an example of that. So the, the idea is that uh, there, is, there is hope until the, the moment of destruction comes. Uh, why didn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Now, I, I, I guess I, I always assumed he didn't want to go to Nineveh because he was afraid. He was, he was afraid of the Ninevites. But he says here, and he's talking to God, he says, Listen, I told you why I didn't want to go in the beginning when you asked me because I know 
you're merciful and gracious, and you're going you're gonna to not destroy them. I think that's, that's what he's saying here. I know you're a merciful and gracious God. Now you're compassionate and merciful, long-suffering, abounding in mercy. So he knows who God is. Now how does he know that? How does he know that that's, how, that's who God is? Um, my guess would be the Psalms were sung. You sing something, it's easy to remember. The Psalms were sung, and from David's, from Psalm 103 in the Septuagint, it's, it's, it's Psalm 102, verse 8. This is exactly what it says. The Lord is compassionate and merciful and gracious and slow to anger. And how did David know that? Well, in Exodus 34, there's a story where Moses gives the most outlandish request that maybe a person has ever given where God, he says, excuse me, God, could I just see your face? Could I, could I, could I, 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 you've talked to me. I've been with you on the mountain, but I've never seen your face. Can you just reveal your face to me? And of course, anyone who will see the face of God, if Moses saw the face of God, you know, Joshua would come, he's with a little pile of dust on the ground. I wonder where Moses went. He didn't see, he'd be vaporized, he'd be incinerated. You can't, no one has ever seen God the Father. It's impossible to see the Father. We'd be destroyed immediately. So you can't, you can't see him, but God says, I will reveal myself to you. And that's what he says. The Lord who's gracious, compassionate, merciful, forgiving. The God, God leads with his mercy and his, and his grace. The God is a God to be feared. He came down to Mount Sinai, scared people after death. But God also explains, this is who I am. I don't want anybody to be destroyed. This is an important thing for us to understand about God's character. They have a balanced view of the character of God. We need to fear God. Absolutely, we need to fear God. At the same time, we need to understand that God, the nature of God, He's merciful, He's compassionate, He's willing to forgive those who turn back to Him. He's not just a taskmaster that we can never satisfy. And it's so important we have this, this clear and balanced picture of who God is. And uh, you know, some other things to learn about God in the story. One thing, one thing I learned in the story of Jonah, God talks to animals. Okay, I, didn't, I didn't think, never thought about that. God commanded the whale, go swallow that man who just, who just got dropped into the water. And then he commands the whale later on, he says, okay, now spit him out three days later. God speaks to animals and tells them what to do, and the animals do what he says. And then God speaks to a worm. Okay, that's pretty wild. Creator of the universe talks to a worm and says, go eat that plant over there, <laughs> that gourd. Go chew it. Chew, chew, chew that plant and, and kill it. So God speaks, to, God speaks to plants. And even at the end of the story, it says, you know, God says, hey, I care. There's 120,000 people and Nineveh, Jonah, that you don't care about, I care about them. And not only them, there's also the cattle too. He, cares, he even cares about the animals. That God is compassionate even toward the animals. It's just the nature of God. So uh, learn little things about God in, in the story here. And then I want to close with a um, little epilogue. Luke chapter 8. Okay, and I'm going to ask you, as we're reading this story, where have you heard this one before? Luke chapter 8. Starting at verse 22. 
a sense of deja vu, like maybe I've been here before. Luke chapter 8, verse 22. Now it happened on a certain day. He got into a boat with his disciples. And he said to them, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down the lake. And they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging water. And they ceased and there was calm. But he said to them, where's your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, who can this be? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. Now let's continue in verse 26. Who does that remind you of? (laughs) Prophet from Galilee, asleep in the boat, storm comes up, everybody's afraid, they wake him up. And he has the ability to calm, he knows what it's going to take to calm the the wind and and the waves. Who's that remind us of? Jesus. <laughs> that is Jesus. Reminds me of Jonah. But now let's let's see what happens next. So what happens after after this this uh, interesting parallel? Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he stepped out in the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time, and he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to, you, to do with you, Jesus, Son of the God Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demons into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, What is your name? He said, Legion, because many demons had entered him, and they begged that no one would command him, uh, would would not command him to go out into the abyss. Let's look at the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 8, a little detail that's not mentioned here. So after, after the voyage is over, he goes to a strange land. And he converts the leading uh, person in that land. In, Luke, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, when he came to the other side of the country of the Gergesenes, there he met him two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so no one could pass that way. Suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, Son of God? Have you come to torment us before our time? Now a good way off from them, a herd of many swine was feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you can cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. So, prophet from Galilee, asleep in the boat, great storm comes up. His fearful companions wake him up. He alone has the ability to calm the storm. After this, this sea is calmed, those in the boat fear and marvel. And after the voyage, he goes to a strange Gentile land. The animals suffer as a result of the the prophet's visit. And the most prominent resident of the land is converted. And in Luke 8, 35, it said he is found seated, clothed, and in his right mind. How is the king of Nineveh described? Seated, clothed, in his right mind. He's sitting... In sack, he's sitting on ashes. 
He is clothed with sackcloth and he is in his right mind repenting and turning back to God. The, the most prominent resident of that land. A quote, closing quote from Cyril of Jerusalem. I'll put the reference in the notes. It said, If we seek for Scripture testimony and proof of the facts, the Lord Jesus Christ himself provides it in the Gospels, saying, As Jonah was three days and nights in the belly's well, so the Son of Man shall be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And when we examine the story of Jonah, great is the force of the resemblance. Jesus was sent to preach repentance. Jonah also was sent. But whereas one fled, not knowing what should come to pass, the other came willingly to give repentance to salvation. Jonah was asleep in the ship and snoring in the midst of the stormy sea. While Jesus also slept, the sea, according to God's providence, began to rise to show in the sequel the might of him who slept. To the one they said, why are you snoring? Arise and call upon your God to save us. But to the other they said, Master, Lord, save us. Matthew 8, 25, 26. Then they said, call upon your God uh, that he may save you. But the one says, take me and cast me into the sea so the sea shall be calm unto you. And the other himself rebukes the wind and the sea, but there was great calm. The one was cast into the whale's belly, but the other of his own accord went down there where the invisible whale of death is. And he went down of his own accord that death might cast up those who had devoured according to that which is written. I will ransom them from the power of the grave and from the hand of death I will redeem them. So uh, Jesus did indeed suffer and die. It was raised on the third day in fulfillment of the prophecies as foreshadowed in Jonah. This is a full-blown allegorical prophecy and it's also, if, if, if there was any doubt about it, the story of Jesus asleep on the boat is a, is a wake-up call. I mean, it's, if, if, if the apostles weren't scared to death and had thought about it, they said, wait a minute, this reminds us of a story in the Old Testament that, uh, that someone's asleep in the bottom of the boat and there's a storm coming up and he can, he can calm the storm. That uh, he fulfilled all the prophecies and uh, there's so many lessons from us in the story and I hope that we can follow the good example of the people of Nineveh that no matter where we are in life, that we repent, turn to God, and fast and ask for his mercy because God is a merciful God who is who is quick to forgive those who turn back to him. Amen.